when I was putting the plans together for the park, I, I made a point of going around and visiting quite a few bike parks around the world. I, I'd been to a fair few anyway, but there are a couple that I targeted specifically to really um, get ideas. And I, I went and talked to a few of the founders and managers of those parks and, and basically picked their brains for what worked and, and what didn't. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 84 features Simon French, the owner of Dirt Art, Medina Bike Park, and a handful of other trail-related companies. Simon is based out of Tasmania, the most mountain bikingest island in the world off of the mainland of Australia. We covered a lot of ground during this conversation, which includes a lot of bike park talk, what it has taken for Simon to run his multiple businesses, and the adversity that a business owner faces. If you are into bike parks, the business side of the trail building world, or if you want to learn more about what you may have to look forward to on your next mountain bike vacation to Tasmania, this episode is for you. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.eviotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Simon French. Yeah, no, that's fine. Whatever works for you. Here we are already on Trail Effect. I have Simon French, the founder of a bunch of businesses. He has Dirt Art, Medina Bike Park, Elevation Parks, and Dirt Group. Simon is based out of Tasmania. And from what I can tell, Tasmania might be the most mountain bikingest island on the planet. Is that a it's fair? Probably getting close. It's probably getting close. <laughs> you have Med- Medina Bike Park. And Blue Derby, which both are listed as the first two rounds of the EWS series now that that calendar came out and is live as of this morning. Does it yeah, get better? Look at, yeah, yeah, I guess. We're, look, we've got a population of about half a million people, so it's a small place. So to get two EWS rounds, the, the first two rounds is, is awesome. We're, we're stoked. Yeah, and that's going to be coming on the heels of kind of the end of what would be your summer, correct? Yeah, that's right. So that's the the autumn, or you guys would say the fall. Um, really, the best time of year for riding, both at our bike park and and right across Tasmania. So re- really well timed from a calendar sense. Maybe we can go into this first, and you might know more. It seems like there's been a lot of questions around the the changing environment with the UCI and the EWS and the removal of Red Bull, or not the removal, but the changing from Red Bull to Discovery. You probably don't know a lot, but that's that's 
the fact that they just released the calendar is pretty incredible because the talk has been what's going on, right? Yeah, there's a lot of talk going on. And look, we've got industry partners right across the board and there's been a lot of talk going on for a while. It is probably a little bit late to be releasing the calendar now. I know there's a little bit of angst from from a bunch of the riders and factory teams that it's taken them this long to, to get there. But look, there has been a lot of change, like you say, going on behind the scenes. So in fairness, there's a lot of work that needed to be done, I suppose. So now I guess it's out in the wild and and people will be commenting all over the various different mountain bike forums about what's good and what's bad about the calendar. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's just nice to get it locked in so everyone knows what's happening when and where. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be uh, vlogs and podcasts and everything else just lighting up now with, with this new information. No doubt. <laughs> Well, let's get into your backstory. We have Simon French, as, we, as we've already stated. Simon has been in mountain biking for a handful of decades now. He's done a lot prior to starting Dirt Art, which was your first formal business. But let's talk about how you found the world of mountain biking. Yeah, look, I, I've been mountain biking since uh, it was a BMX on bush trails that we built for ourselves back in the, the early 90s, I suppose. So I probably got my first mountain bike back in about 94. 95 I suppose um, started racing when I was about 11 um, ended up racing junior world championships for Australia back in 1999 in Vail that was my short but sweet <laughs> time in the, the international racing scene I just did a year and then ended up going back to university but that, that was sort of my background um, I started trail building back in probably around then formally as a volunteer and then basically just grew grew the first business, which is our trail building company, Dirt Art, uh, from that point. And it's just steadily grown ever since. Yeah. So with Dirt Art, you know, I've, I've listened to a couple, a handful of other podcasts that you've been on and, and done some research for this. You guys have built like all over the world, including China. Yeah, we, we've done a fair bit. So we, we've developed world level racing venues. We did the Commonwealth Games venue, Gold Coast back in 2018. Uh, we've done, oh, Two, three hundred projects now, I think, right across the world. As you say, we did one in China a few years ago now. That, that was interesting. It was certainly not, and it was not really the, the mainstream China uh, near a major city. It was very, very regional, kind of right up in the north, in the center of China. So uh, that was a very un- unique project. I got over there, I think, four or five times over the course of that particular year. And it was, a, it was, it was awesome, actually, really, really good. And then you took on what might be the largest project you have going to date, which is the Medina Bike Park, which from what I've gathered has been kind of an animal in itself. Yeah, it, it definitely has. So we, we launched the, I guess, stepping back from that even, we, I first went to the site at Medina back in 2008. So um, at the time, it was managed by our government forestry organization, and they were basically looking at what they could potentially do with that site, um, looking at mountain bike. Really, at that stage, even, it was looking at a commercial mountain bike development, but probably a little young in the industry, particularly in Australia. So they elected not to proceed with that project. And then sort of, it's probably 2012, 2012, that the, that opportunity came up to look at leasing that site and developing it. So we, we sort of took it forward from there. But yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to go right into the, the Medina story now yeah so one of the things with medina when i got your email i had never heard of this term before and i kind of can't believe i haven't because once i looked it up there's a lot of 
sites that I've heard of within this term, and that is a World Heritage Site or a World Heritage Area. Yeah. Could you maybe talk about what that is specifically? Because I think a lot of listeners like myself might not have heard of that before, even though we have World Heritage Areas in the United States and literally all over the world. Yeah. So I guess in in a nutshell, it's basically a, a very high conservation value area with, with a, a strong natural value. Usually those areas are quite quite pristine. They might have um, natural values, historical values. They're categorized as a world heritage area, I, I suppose, to, to protect them primarily. There are recreation opportunities within these areas, such as our bike park. But I think we're, we're the only, we might be the only mountain bike trail, but I think we're certainly the only commercial mountain bike trail within a world heritage area. So Look, it, I guess it did put a lot of onus back on us to, to put forward a plan that was very sensitive, very sustainable. Um, we certainly went through a very lengthy development and approvals process to get the bike park going. But one of the things that we do have with the park, which is quite unusual for a commercial bike park, is we are situated in pristine forest. It's not a ski, a ski hill, so there's not cleared ski runs. There's not a heap of infrastructure everywhere. Um, you are very much um, in you know, pretty much untouched rainforest the whole time you're riding big bike park trails and technical trails. So it's quite unique in that respect. And you said that Medina had already had some stuff going on. And one of those things was a rather large structure that you took over. Yeah. So it it had a bit of an interesting past. Um, Basically at the time, the forestry group were looking at developing it into a tourism venture for themselves. So they, they put this honking big building on the top of the hill, and it's a, an amazing building. And they were looking at putting a, a funicular railway, like a ground-based lift system, but basically like a little train system up to the top of the hill for various different reasons, engineering problems. And uh, th- there was a big downturn in their tourism business at the time as well. They basically elected to, to not go ahead. So that was back in 2008. They took us for a tour up to the top of the hill. And at that point, they were basically just starting to install the building, but they really had no idea <laughs> what they were going to do with this building. So, um, yeah, part of the leasehold that we took on, uh, we own the lower part of the hill. The upper part of the hill is is leased to us in a long-term perpetual lease with the government. Part of that, we, we took on that building as well, which sort of a, it's a very unique building. Uh, we use it for a few different things. We're, we're still figuring out best <laughs> the best thing to do with it, but it, it's an amazing site. That 110 meters, oh, sorry, 1100 meters above sea level. So about 3,300 feet, I suppose, with, with views right, right through the mountains. So it, it's an amazing spot. So that is the actual top of where the bike park, I guess, would you could say starts at because it's a gravity based bike park for the most part. Yeah. They have some cross country there. Yeah, we've certainly added a lot of trail riding over the last little while. And I often laugh with people that. That, to, that think it is just a gravity-based bike park because most of our staff trail ride these days because we're all trying to get fit. <laughs> but but we enjoy the trail riding anyway. So now there is quite a bit of trail riding, contouring trail. But yes, you're, you're right. Most people start at the top of the hill. We do have we have three drop-off points. So there's a drop-off point at 200 meters, 600 feet. There's another drop-off at 400 meters, 1200 feet. And then there's the the full mountain shuttle, which finishes at that that Abbott's um, peak, which is where you've got that building at the top. So that is the start for most people. Let's talk about, you've, you've hosted your cross-country uh, national championships, if, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, we did. So we've had uh, two enduro national championships. Um, they call it Gravity Enduro for our national series, but it is enduro. 
Um, then we had the last two years, we had cross country and downhill national championships at Medina. So that was, um, we had the last one oh, back in March, February, February this year. A, th- a thing that I picked up on from another podcast is that when you built out Medina, and you've already alluded to this a little bit, you can actually ride it as kind of a pick your own path experience, you know, and link a whole lot of different trail experiences and trail trails together in general. Like let's talk about how that might look for a user and what, what they could actually experience from a true trail experience, not just gravity, but the whole enchilada. Yeah, sure thing. So, so no, look, we, we took a bit of a different development approach, I suppose, to, to some parks and, and certainly to public trail networks. When I was putting the plans together for the park, I, I made a point of going around and visiting quite a few bike parks around the world. I, I'd been to a fair few anyway, but there are a couple that I targeted specifically to really um, get ideas. And I, I went and talked to a few of the founders and managers of those parks and and basically picked their brains for what worked and, and what didn't. But what I really liked was that, I guess, Whistler bike park style model where you can ride one lap that you can do, you know, multiple different trails within that lap. So you might start on a flow trail, um, go to a technical trail, jump trail, back to a flow trail, technical trail, and, you know, put together that choose your own adventure kind of mountain bike ride within each lap. Um, The thing that I perhaps wanted to change beyond that model was building it to be a bit more enduro focused so so basically our hills got three four really primary ridge lines that run down the hill so most of our trail clusters on those those four ridge lines running down the hill but then what we've done is we've connected at various different points of the hill contouring trails that run across the hill so basically you can switch between multiple different trails on the ridge lines but if you want a bit more of a pedal and a bit more of a scenic ride you can basically stop at any of these contouring trails and, and basically ride in on a contouring alignment right across the hill. So those those also have climbing trails linking to to most of them. Um, so basically, you can put together any sort of ride you want. It's certainly not in any way a traditional like IMBA stack loop trail system, but we find it works really really well because you can climb, you can descend, you can enduro ride, or you can downhill you know, basically World Cup downhill style riding all within the same bike park. Let's get into the weeds. So go on. <laughs> and, the, and there's a lot of the people that listen to this show are trail builders and trail planners and advocates for clubs. And, and they kind of get, you know, get into or want to know, know more about the, the backstory, about the planning and stuff. And let's talk about what the planning process was like to create this. Aside from the fact that you traveled to these places, you had to present something viable, you know, to your Australian government, right? To get all this access. Yeah. And at the same time, make it amazing for all your users. It was complicated. So we, we went through hundreds of meetings, um, years of planning time. We worked with various different consultants. Um, look, there, there are a few things that were take homes, I suppose, out of that. And a few things that were, were quite unique. Um, one of the things for us is that the planning scheme in Tasmania really didn't suit what we were trying to do. So basically, we triggered all sorts of different weird things like landslide risk assessments and stuff that had never really come up before because um, most of the trail networks had grown quite organically. And, and we were basically proposing a 120-kilometer trail network, which, which definitely freaked a few people out at the start and look as a commercial entity rather than a public 
um, like a local council or something would normally do this type of development. We got all sorts of weird stuff thrown at us, which which was interesting. And and look, some of them took quite a while. Like we we took about six nine months, I think, just to work through a specific forestry planning requirement, which was down uh, related to tree clearing. We weren't actually clearing any trees, well, as as you'd well know, and most of your listeners would too. Um, the whole joy of mountain bike trails is usually just to weave through the trees, but because of the large development area that we were proposing, um, it triggered all sorts of different logging codes that we had to try and work through. So that one was was particularly complicated, and that kind of hit us at the eleventh hour when we were planning to to really already be well and truly underway. So we actually split our development process into two. So we did a we did a construction works approval, and then we did a separate operational works approval, which to be honest was pretty risky because we knew that if we didn't get the operational approval, we were in a bit of strife, but we were pretty confident or, you know, we were very confident really that we would get it. But the, the issue for us was we really needed to get started. Um, we'd already invested pretty heavily in the project by that point. And with the seasonality, we knew that we needed to, to hit the ground running pretty quickly. So uh, basically all in all, we ended up about six months behind um we'd left ourselves a pretty good buffer thankfully in terms of our development pathway that we put together but we ended up basically burning up an extra year in the planning process than what we really hoped to so it was long it was arduous um the other thing for us was um it wasn't just a straightforward site where it was owned by one person or one entity so basically we had this amazing mountain um, full of rainforest with that epic building at the top of the hill but then we had a private timber plantation that basically cut off that site from the town of Medina. And then we had um, to try and find a way to link the town, link the trails into the, the very centre of town because we wanted this to be a you know absolute right in, right out, roll out of your accommodation. Uh, Medina is a tiny town. There's only 150 houses. Basically, we wanted people to, to jump off their doorstep and, and onto the trails. So. We ended up talking to the local council. Um, funnily enough, um, they actually were owners of an old primary school building in the town, which hadn't been used for about 10 years. So they said to us, hey, do you want to buy the primary school? We said, yeah, that's amazing. So we ended up um, signing a lease with them to a lease to buy out this primary school. And look, various things happened over the years. And, and basically, the council's ownership over that school um, wasn't exactly what they thought it was. So we had an agreement to buy it from them, but in fact, it actually still was owned by the state government rather than the council. So we'd sort of been proceeding on this basis that that we were going to buy the primary school. And eventually we couldn't buy the primary school, but I suppose fortuitously, it ended up being rolled into our lease with the government at the top of the hill. So um, that saved the day, I suppose, in that sense. But then we had a lot of work to do with the private timber plantation to basically get access through their land. So we ended up putting just a handful of trails through that part of the hill. Unfortunately, though, it was one of the best parts of the hill. So we really wanted to do a lot more trail development in there. It also happened to be the area where we needed to develop a lot of things to, to host event space um, for various different events that we had coming online. So probably about two and a half years ago now, um, we entered into a sale agreement to purchase that land from them. We had to do a whole bunch of um, rezoning, boundary adjustments, and and all sorts of other things to get to a point where we could buy that land. But probably uh, nearly a year ago now, we purchased all of that land from them. 
which basically unlocked the potential to, to do all sorts of things. So we ended up building a, a jump park and um, big skills parks and all sorts of stuff. So I guess that's a, a very brief overview <laughs> of the development process, but certainly lots of challenges along the way. Um, one of the things that we did that, that really saved the day, I suppose, as a take-home was we knew that we needed some flexibility with the trail development as we rolled it out because, it, look, we've, we've done dozens and dozens of large-scale master plans, but as anyone in the industry, I'm sure, would agree, very, very hard to develop a, a trail plan that big and know exactly where everything's going to go. Um, things change when you're out in the field and when you're developing 100 kilometres of trail, one small change can kind of alter the course significantly <laughs> of, of the whole development. So what we did is we, we basically sought development approval um, to do anything trail development-wise across these major ridgelines of the hill. So that's now allowed us the flexibility to, to basically build trail where we want to build trail as we keep rolling the park out. So that made our life a lot harder going through the development approvals, but it, it's been a real saviour because now rather than having to go back and get separate development approval every time we want to put a new trail in, um, we can just keep building trail basically and and we're at the point now where this summer i think we will hit our hundredth trail hundredth individual trail section so as you can imagine like if we had to seek development approval every time we put in a new trail it, it would it would be a very very complicated process i do want to mention that if those are doing the ma- those that are doing the math they probably have figured out by now this is all happening during covid and most of it probably started you really got a lot of your backs, you know, your planning done pre-COVID without knowing that COVID was going to be a thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, COVID was not not on the horizon back when we started. So the park opened January 2018. Um, we had a massive flooding event in the first summer. So basically, we lost a good month of trading, and we only had half a summer then anyway because we launched in January. So for us, that was that was well and truly, you know, halfway through the season. The second year, there were massive fires. We had a big drought. <laughs> so it was just random. But, but we, we literally nearly lost the park to fire, uh, nearly lost the whole town actually to fire. So at, at one point, I was standing on, on top of that, on the top of the roof of the building, um, basically with our, our land manager, Parks, on the phone, Parks and Wildlife, talking about how I could set up a sprinkler system. And, and they basically said to me, look, just get, get out of there. It's too late. Like yeah, the whole thing's going to burn. So I, I remember driving out of the town as this big fire cloud was coming through. But anyway, we, we lost about six weeks of that summer and we had a lot of booking cancellations because the, the fires were national news. It was a really big deal. Um, and then COVID hit. So um, the next year, <laughs> COVID came. Um, thankfully, it didn't really hit us until about March, I suppose. Um, we elected to shut a little bit prior to... Um, so when the mandates came, Australia locked down pretty heavily. So by, I think, start of April, um, everything had locked down anyway and everyone had scuttled and, and head home, headed home. But we shut a little bit earlier. Um, we were just losing bookings left, right and centre and it just wasn't viable for us. And obviously at that point, no one really knew what this thing was. So we thought it was best that we just pull the shutters down and, and see what happened. So Look, it's been a, a funny few years, really. Um, the, the year prior to this season, was we were almost shut the whole season. We had a little bit of local trading. And then this season has actually been pretty good. Um, international markets slowly coming back. Um, the interstate market is, is almost all back. 
But what we did see, as with most places, I guess, was a, a massive rise in local participation over COVID. So our local Tasmanians, even though there's not that many of them, um, we, we had a doubling, basically, of, of Tasmanian visitation over that period, which which has been awesome. So there's a couple directions I want to go with a lot of the stuff you just said. But first and foremost, how the hell do you deal with that adversity from a mental perspective? <laughs> you, can, you can see the gray hairs. The listeners probably can't. <laughs> um, no, look, it, it's it's been challenging, right? Um, I guess the, the hard thing for us, we have multiple businesses and, and that helps in most cases. Um, generally speaking, we can ride out all sorts of different events. Um, our trail building business was hit really heavily. Um, the challenge for us was in Australia, there were sort of two major COVID waves that hit as as the government was still trying to control COVID and, and eliminate it, I guess, at that point in time. So there was a big wave through Victoria. And just, again, unfortunately, we had a, a massive construction project. We had a couple actually in Victoria. So most of our staff, we had about 60 or 70 staff at the time. They were all in Victoria through that lockdown. So we were really, really heavily affected through that lockdown. And then we kind of drew a sigh of relief once we finished that project and everything seemed to be okay. We shifted all our crews up into New South Wales and then they got hit by a massive wave of COVID and locked the whole state down. So we kind of got slammed by the two biggest COVID events in the country with our construction program. Plus we had a you know a heap of projects delayed and rescheduled and cancelled and so in the background, we were kind of getting pummeled in a trail building sense as the bike park was was basically shut for the most part. So it was a really tough period, I suppose. There's not really any other way to put it. But by that point, look, we knew what we were doing at Maydana was awesome and, and people were just desperate to come back. So we knew we had to hang in there. The other direction I wanted to go with Maydana specifically is what did it take from a logistics perspective and just people power perspective to get that volume of trail built in the time frame that you had to get it built? Like how many people did you have there and how many machines are running at the same time and in those details? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess to, to give you context, um, Maydana was bootstrapped. We didn't take on any external investment. So everything we did um, had to be done very budget consciously. Um, look, the main reason that I elected to do it that way was because we knew that we needed creative control over this thing to be able to do um, silly things, as I say to a lot of people, that, that most people who were looking at it from a financial perspective, that they're just not going to agree to it, basically. So, so we knew that, that we had to try and do this thing ourselves so that we could maintain the control we needed to, to get it to a point where we were happy with the operation. And, and it's cool too, because like ch- chatting here to a bunch of crew, at Whistler, like the big corporates, that really cool part of our bike park family. They love working with us because they don't have to deal with corporate stuff. Um, we just come up with great ideas and we do them straight away. So I guess setting that context, uh, it was no different with the development pathway for us. Like we knew that once we started building this thing, we had to open it pretty quickly <laughs> because we needed it to start paying for itself. So we basically worked out that we wanted about 35 kilometers of trail to launch the park. We could have launched with a little bit less, but look, we are, we often laugh at the end of the earth. Like we're, <laughs> we're sort of a remote little island at the bottom of the world. So for us to make a splash and get people to come down, we needed a decent volume of trail to kick off. So 
we started out with 35 kilometers. Um, as I said earlier, we ended up a year behind with our development pathway. So basically, we ended up with six months to build that first seven months, actually, seven months to build a whole bike park. And so we hit the ground with about 15 construction staff. Look, I would have loved 15 more, but we just couldn't afford it. So we basically worked those guys pretty hard. Um, they now sit on, their names sit on a plaque at the top of the bike park. <laughs> we felt that, that we owed them, uh, you know, a lot more than that, but um, they're definitely honoured going forward as the, the original builders of the bike park. Um, since then, and we did get a state government grant for $800,000. Um, we had to co-fund that with about one point two of our own money. And that helped us develop the second stage of the bike park. So we, we had a little bit more flexibility, I suppose, but we were still working pretty hard to, to get that trail in. Um, these days, we, we sort of rotate through having various different levels of staff at the bike park. Um, over COVID, actually, I hadn't been an excavator for, for quite a while because I'd just been traveling around looking after our, our growing trail program. But when I couldn't travel anymore for you know a better part of a year, I jumped back on the tools and actually started really enjoying trail building again myself. So I think over COVID period, I put about 10 kilometers of trail in myself into our trail network. And, and look, to be honest, since then, I've, I've sort of been spending two or, three, th two or three days a week when I'm home building in the bike park myself just because I love doing it, basically. But going forward, we, we just structure it around our other trail building projects so we're unfortunately we're flat out building everywhere at the moment and trying to recruit as many people as we can to try and grow our our program so we've only got a couple of guys working back at Medina but as we come into the spring we'll we'll certainly be running a bigger program again as we we put a few new trails in ready for the EWS yeah and we're going to we're going to get into some of the other places you're at because I've got some questions with that as well but we'll stick on Medina for now when you got access to the lower land that was a, that allowed you to unlock access for beginner stuff. How did that build go, and what does that mean for the park? Yeah, so look, one of the I was laughing with a few people about this this week, but one of the first things we we tried to do when we got that state government grant money, um, we decided we wanted to put a beginner trail in from the top of the hill, and and we gave it a go, and we put in a trail that was you know kind of beginner. <laughs> it was kind of tough. It, it, it's a different geology up there. It's very rocky, really harsh, and, and it's just a bloody big hill. So um, we got the trail in. Like It didn't work out that great, to be honest. Um, it was just too hard for beginners. And we kind of looped back on it and thought, look, let's let's get real with this. Beginners can't really descend, you know, eight, 820 vertical meters, 2,500 feet. You know, some can, but <laughs> to get it on a gradient that works for a beginner, I mean, you're talking a 13 to 15 kilometer trail basically it's a long way and the other thing was it was chewing up a lot of real estate that we wanted to use for, for other trail but we were sort of in a bit of a bind because like you say we didn't have access to the lower part of the hill well not the access we wanted anyway so basically getting that land from from the timber company unlocked about 300 acres of land but the key thing was it was strategically really important land it was the the more mellow part of the hill um, it had a really nice sort of drop-off point at about 600 feet, 200 meters. So what that allowed us to do was um, create a new trail. We called it Dirt Surfer, and that was really the catalyst for for change at Medina. Um, that brought in a whole new audience, and it's just kept growing from there. 
one of the things we we struggled with, I suppose, was we we very much launched this bike park as being a really challenging elite level bike park, and we did that deliberately. It was a tough, steep hill. It was a big hill. We knew that the best way of going to market to hit our target audience was to be renowned for being pretty gnarly and pretty tough and big jumps and very much a bike park for experienced mountain bike riders. And and that got us a really good reputation across Australia and around the world, really, for, for being an awesome place to ride if you knew how to ride. But it also got us a reputation for being pretty scary for beginner riders. So So we were out there driving all our marketing campaigns saying, hey, Maidena's got amazing beginner trail. Come and bring your kids and family. But everyone's sort of going, nah, nah, not going there. <laughs> that place is way too hard. So it's taken us a good couple of years. So we've had some really nice beginner product on the ground in terms of trails for a long time, but it took a while to really start breaking down those barriers and getting people to to come and enjoy the bike park that we had our biggest families and beginner visitation ever by a very big stretch this past season. So that, it was awesome to see. And look, we're continuing to invest in that lower part of the hill. We've got um, three or four new beginner trails coming online this summer to help consolidate, which will be great. And I think by that point, we'll probably have about 15 separate beginner trails, maybe a couple more. So it's a decent slice of our trail network. And with that, you do offer lessons and bike rentals, or as you refer to them, bike hire? Yeah, we do. So from day one, um, we, uh, I guess, figured out that we couldn't just run an uplift service. So I suppose just to clarify that, we don't have a chairlift. Um, we're certainly looking at one. We're doing a feasibility for one at the moment, but um, we run shuttle buses at the moment, and we use a, a, four, or we have a few of them, actually, um, four by four side-by-side um, -side ATV vehicle to shuttle the lower part of the hill. Um, but basically, we knew that just doing that wasn't going to be sustainable. Um, certainly not. We're not financially sustainable. So we, we wanted to launch from day one, really being a full-service bike park. So as I often laugh with people, <laughs> we, um, we, we basically launched about eight businesses in one when we launched the bike park. So we launched two restaurants, um, a bike rentals business, a bike school business, the bike park business and then everything that went along with it. So no, we, we kind of do it all. Um, it is a small town. It's about an hour, hour and a half from any major population area. So the other thing for us is like, if we, if we don't provide it, that there wasn't really anyone, anyone else in town providing it. And that's slowly changing, but we knew that we basically had to service our customer and, and service them really well. So we needed a hospitality product that gave them great food for three meals a day. And we needed to have great coffee in the morning and, and great beer in the afternoons, basically. Uh, as we all know, that's really the, the fundamentals behind a great mountain bike holiday. Beyond the trails, you, you've got to get caffeinated and you've got to enjoy a nice beverage and a good meal at the end of the day. Yeah, and you've perfectly teed up the next question I was going to ask, because you travel a ton. You know, you A lot, yeah. You're in Whistler right now, which is the other side of the world, literally. What are some travel tips... For those who may want to come from the other side of the world to Tasmania, yeah, um, well, just come down, right? Because it's amazing. But <laughs> <laughs> just hop in a plane and go. <laughs> no, look, I, I travel a lot, and I, I'm very used to throwing my bike in a bag, basically every week, and traveling off somewhere. It is a little harder, I know, for some people to to make that leap and think about actually getting on a plane to go mountain bike riding, but. Look, it's well worth it. Get a good bike bag when you're going through airports. It definitely helps. Um, 
other than that, I think just relax and enjoy is probably the main thing. Like I, I tend to not be too structured when I'm planning a not that I get that much time for a social mountain bike holiday these days, but I tend to like just landing and exploring basically. But Look, if you're coming to Tasmania, the, the two big mountain bike destinations are Medina and Derby. Uh, Medina is more gravity focused, but adding a lot more trail riding into the mix. Derby is more trail riding focused, but is slowly adding more gravity into the mix. So we're, we're both sort of converging a little bit more as well-rounded mountain bike destinations, I suppose. Derby's got about 120 kilometers of trail. We've got it coming up on 80 kilometers of trail. They're very different. We've got a very big hill. They've got a bit smaller hill. Derby's a bit more developed as a town. They launched about three years before us. So that's sort of given them a, a bit more of a runway to get some more private third-party development and accommodation and things underway. But otherwise for Tasmania, I mean, look, there's six or seven major mountain bike destinations now. And each of those has got kind of 50 to 150 kilometers of trail. Um, the island's quite small, so you can drive from one end to the other in four or five hours. So the, the world's really your oyster once you get down there, depending on what style of trail you're into. Uh, we did a, a, a reasonable size, bloody hard build um, trail development up in Queenstown. So that's really unique. It's a little mining town and there's this really rugged mountain, Mount Owen, next to the town and there's no trees on it. They're all... Um, killed off by mining activity basically so it's just this rocky outcrop and and we basically put four most of them are pretty tough challenging enduro trails down that mountain and there's an uplift service that gets you to the top so that's a really really unique mountain bike destination that's about two and a half hours from Medina three and a half hours from Medina it's well worth a look as sort of one of those bucket list rides that you're probably not going to go there for four or five days, but it's one of those rides that you'll you'll remember forever. So once you get to Tasmania, do you do you rent a vehicle? Is there like what's the best way of actually getting around once you're or actually, yeah once you get to Tasmania? Like what's what's that? Is there any secrets there? Yeah, look, uh, people do all sorts of different things. There are there are a bunch of companies now running tours, so there'll be tours to us, Derby, maybe adding in some other places as well. Um, that's one option if you want the the kind of light touch um, serviced option. A lot of people do rent cars. Uh, basically, as I said, it's a small island. So once you're in a car, you can kind of do whatever you want to do. Um, Tasmania is also renowned for, for really stunning wilderness areas everywhere beyond mountain bike riding. Um, there's a great food and wine scene as well, great craft beer scene, a couple of really nice cities that are well worth a look. Hobart and Launceston are the two major cities. So if it were me, I'd get in a car, to be honest. Um, you've got a lot more flexibility and you can really enjoy the place for what it is beyond just the mountain bike riding. There are just some um, transport companies that will get you from Hobart, the, the nearest city to us, out to Medina and then onwards to Derby or vice versa. So that's an option as well. Um, there, there's plenty of different ways of doing it. Um, we've looked at doing transport ourselves, but we really wanted to leave that space open for, for other businesses to get involved. Yeah, I suppose your bandwidth is pretty much taken up and consumed by the bike park, elevation parks, dirt art. Yeah, dirt, we, we got the dirt stuff group. To worry about. All the things. Yeah, that's it. And conversely, you know, so we'll we'll get out of Medina and go into just the, the general world of trail building. From a logistics perspective, how do you move a company around the world? Do you I'm assuming you ha you're not moving equipment. You have to, you know, coordinate with local rental companies or figure out like there's, and I mean, that seems to be an issue just 
you know, working in the States, you know, I couldn't imagine trying to like, yeah, do that around the world. Oh, look around Australia. We, we generally use our own equipment. So we've got about 17 excavators now, I think that we move around the country. Um, we usually just float them around on big trucks. So gone are the days. We we used to just tow them around on a trailer, but we just have too many now. <laughs> it's too hard. So we, we basically just semi-trailer them. Uh, we don't own a semi-trailer. We, we just use a freight service. We basically just freight them between jobs. Um, we're quite lucky now. Um, we don't tend to do well, lucky. It depends on how you look at it. But most of our projects are big projects where we're there for a year or two. So we don't tend to hop around a lot. We, we have a couple of crews that do smaller projects with us, but for the most part, our staff, once they head somewhere, they're going to be there for a little while. So we've got we've got two new bike parks that we're developing, one in New South Wales, one in Queensland. Um, we'll be there for years. So once we settle in there, the guys will be there for, for a long time. But most of our public projects are kind of 60 to 100 kilometer trail networks as well. So once we move, we're not moving that often. Um, certainly when we're working overseas, um, we are very much hiring equipment. That was fun in China. I remember I sent a list of things that we needed over to our client over there and um, trying to negotiate all the various. We had to build some timber features and other things. So we rocked up there and we, we had some very, very weird equipment <laughs> that they had supplied for us, like basically horse and carts and things to to move stuff around rather than bobcats. And <laughs> it was it was fun. I mean, we had a couple of excavators in the end, but it certainly wasn't what we wanted. I think they were about three excavators short on what we asked them for. So instead of giving us excavators, I think they gave us 50 local village people. And basically that was their their trade-off. They said, look, these guys will move just as much soil as the, the three excavators. So you, you just have to make do. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. But no, look, we, we, we move stuff around Australia, but definitely not overseas. Um, we have thought about getting some equipment here and there, but our, look, our Australian trail building operation is so busy. We haven't really looked at work overseas for a while now. And how is that being, you know, you've already talked about the, your ridership at, at Medina going up quite a bit, especially from locals, but Australia in general, is that seen growing and growing still? Yeah, it's huge. Um, certainly in the, the major capital cities, the eastern seaboard, which is mostly where we, we operate. Most of our crews are in New South Wales at the moment, but you look at Sydney, um, it's got a greater Sydney's got a population of five or six million. Um, there's almost no good formal mountain biking near the city, only these really tiny little trail networks. So there, there's just a massive amount of pressure on those little trail networks. So a lot of informal trail getting developed which is a challenge for land managers and a challenge, I suppose, for people like us. We often get engaged to, to come and try and mediate between land managers and local users and try and find a, a way to make these informal trail networks sustainable and functional. So we're certainly doing a lot of that in the consulting space at the moment. And it's hard for us. I mean, we we do a lot of work in that environmental planning space and, and we struggle i suppose sometimes to balance out the wants of a local audience that just wants more trail and the, the legal and legislative frameworks that you have to try and mold that trail into so there's there's been a real growing challenge in that space and, and we're trying to work with a lot of land managers to find good solutions and find good places to to develop trail to cater for all these new riders but yeah a massive growth in the sport definitely um, right across australia with that, you know, obviously you have a lot of builders working for you. 
What does the what do your companies look like in terms of kind of the breakdown of of employees and professions that you have employed to cover all the aspects like the environmental, the planning, the GIS, and all the things that actually go into getting trail built aside from the digging? Yeah, look for us, we're we're pretty light on for for management. Um, we have a fairly flat company structure, even though we've grown quite big. Um, generally, uh, this summer. Um, coming into this summer, out of this winter, we'll probably have roughly 70 construction staff. Um, out of those, we're um, beyond those, sorry, we've got about seven seven staff looking after project management, maybe six actually. Um, we've just brought on a new training manager to help us. Um, he's a, one of our staff actually and has come back into the industry. So he's looking at helping us train up new staff basically because we've we need another 30, 40, 50 staff over the next few years to meet the, the demand in the industry. So um, beyond that, we've got an architect um, uh, who's also one of our project managers. He does a lot of our design work and signage design and things like that. Um, we've got a senior management team that basically look after the, the nuts and bolts of the, the company, um, financial and, and otherwise. But beyond that, um, most of our guys are still out in the field just um, swinging tools and, and getting work done basically the hard thing for us like with most of the trail builders i would assume is just trying to train more construction staff and particularly excavator staff it is a very it's a fine art and to, to build trail well with an excavator takes a long time so those staff are, are a group that we we really look after and and try and keep them engaged and happy and try and create more of them really to to keep up with with the trail building Australia has been pretty prolific um, over the last few years. They've definitely, the governments and things have thrown a lot of money behind public mountain bike destinations. They've really seen it as a, a major driver for tourism and economic development. So they're, they're building, you know, 100 kilometre trail networks at, at various different places around the country, trying to drive mountain bike tourism, basically. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to wrap your head around that, that's, that's a lot of, that's a huge volume of trails. Like, I look at that locally and I'm like, you know, just yesterday, and this is getting in the weeds on my end a little bit, but just yesterday, a local trail uh, organization, which is about 40 miles from me, was trying to, you know, they had a public meeting to get what was already approved, another approval to build about a mile of trail. Yeah. Yeah. I look, to be honest, and we we do a bunch of that too. So uh, we're out there um, just helping small communities get small trails developed, but our, our main focus for construction is these bigger projects. Um, it, look, look, it's been nice too because there's a couple of companies that are sort of close to our size and our size in Australia, and then there's a lot of smaller trail building companies, and and it's kind of nice for us to just not compete on those smaller jobs and give those other guys a chance to to get some runs on the board and and start developing their own businesses. I, I think. From my perspective, anyway, I'm very big on on trying to support the growth of the industry, not just the growth of our our operation. Um, I think what we've seen is really that rising tide floating all boats, and, and there's a lot of work around. Um, yes, we compete on some of the projects we really want, and yes, we don't win them all. And of course, we're bummed when we don't win them. If we really wanted to be working on that particular project, but at the end of the day, and we're busy. Most of the industry is busy. You, you can't really complain. Yeah, it's that's the the what the, I mean there's a lot of common themes here with this podcast, but that is a huge common theme is just how busy the industry is around the world, you know, and the need yeah, for more it's, employees. It's huge. Absolutely. And and look, we do a lot of work, as I mentioned to you when we we're chatting offline, 
in the walking trail space as well. So we we don't do any small work. We only do the really strange, unique multi-day walks and things that are really logistics heavy. So we've got a team that that looks after that in terms of helicopter logistics and flying in rock and other things. We, we finished a project. It was actually the project back in Victoria. It's a 100-kilometer walking trail project that we did right through the middle of COVID. And I, I don't know what the final count was, but it would have been... 20 30,000 rock steps I think we, we put into this project so each of those steps was split from boulders so we basically had the team creating rock step treads and then installing those step treads up through cliff lines and a really really cool project a, a nightmare to administer but good fun and yeah we, we do a bunch of that work as well so we've got another one on the coast of New South Wales at the moment where the guys are flying in rock from quarries so we basically work with quarries to custom develop rock step treads and make them look natural then fly them all into site over multiple helicopter days and things so we do a bunch of that work as well yeah this is uh, it's that's kind of mind-blowing too the whole helicopter thing that's only came up one other time on the podcast and that was that was when why a helicopter wasn't used to build a trail in colorado that was pretty remote and really unique and that's just, it's just another, like, is a helicopter a pretty common tool in terms of just the country of Australia and access to having helicopters for transport? Uh, look, it's pretty common with a lot of the parks agencies when you're flying in materials. Uh, and we certainly encourage it where it's possible because it, it just takes, it's a lot of work to cart material on the ground. Um, this particular project in New South Wales at the moment is a few thousand rock steps. And each of those rock steps is about 100 kilograms each. So for us to get that, there's not even really a safe way to do it. So part of it is just looking after your staff as much as anything. But I would say, look, in any given week, we're probably flying a helicopter somewhere, doing something with logistics, moving bridges, materials, um, something else. I actually really enjoy it because it... <laughs> It's complicated. Um, there's often lots of really complex logistics and flight paths and calculating what's going to fly where and what you're allowed to fly over and what you're not allowed to fly over. And um, it's kind of high risk in the sense that generally um, we're, we're carrying the can for the helicopter cost and helicopters cost a lot. Um, we, we Oftentimes when we're flying a big machine, it might be five to you know even eight, $9,000 an hour for helicopter operations. So every minute that you miscalculate your, your load volumes and things, it, it hurts. So it's um, it's complicated, but it's fun. Well, speaking of flying, let's go to where you are now. You're at Whistler Crankworks. How's that trip been? Yeah, it's, it's been good. Um, I've been coming here pretty well every year for 20-odd for years, close to anyway. So for me, um, it's just a common thing. Basically, flew, flew over here every year, catch up with the industry. Um, for us, like we we work really closely with a bunch of global partners in the bike park, SRAM, RockShox, and others. Um, um, it is a little lonely down in Australia in the bike park space. There's 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 Threadbow up in New South Wales that run a cool mountain bike program. Um, we looked after their their trail development and planning for about six years, but. We, we don't work with them these days. They look after it themselves. But other than that, um, we really need to get to the Northern Hemisphere to, to chat to people and, and do our business, really, in terms of working out all those deals with our partners and just catching up with people. So 
for me, I, I use Whistler Crankworks as a vehicle to do that. Um, that's what I tell the taxman, but I also really enjoy the riding here. <laughs> so I haven't been for a few years. Obviously, Crankworks hasn't happened for a couple of years. Um, once COVID hit, um, we, we just basically lost our ability to travel internationally. So no, I come over here every year. Um, yeah, well, certainly was until COVID and plan to keep doing it. This is the first year I've brought my family over as a whole. So I've got my my wife and my son who rides um, flat out. He's six and my, my daughter who's just getting into it, she's three. So they're over here this year, which has been awesome to kind of show them around the, the Whistler sites. But no, other than that, it's it's been really good. It's been hot. Um, we've been catching up, which is nice coming out of winter, but <laughs> catching up with a lot of the industry who I haven't seen for, for years and years and people that we've worked with over the years at Medina doing various product shoots and product launches and other things. So it's really good to to get that networking and just riding and beer drinking, I suppose, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's awesome. Uh, the other one I do a lot of is, is just traveling over to the States for, for various different conferences and things. Like, and that was how I, I came across you um, at that NSAA conference, which is great for us. Yeah. How was that for you, the NSAA conference? That really, and maybe you know this, but that really wasn't on my radar until Earl had reached out to me. And I was at the PTBA conference in Bentonville, coincidentally, when he reached out to me for that conference. Yeah, so it, it came across my radar. The fir- I actually went to the first one that they hosted, and I, I've been to every one other than one of them. I was actually talking to Earl about it this week, um, about the next one. But basically, look, I, I was working with a developer in Queensland back oh, must four or five years ago now, I suppose. And we were looking at developing a bike park for him. He ended up electing not to proceed, but he actually put it across my radar and said, hey, do you want to come over to Colorado with me? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure thing. So we traveled over to, to Winter Park, which I think was their first one. But no, look, it was really good. As I was saying to Earl this week, for us, like there was, particularly in Tasmania, there, there were no bike parks. There was no commercial mountain biking. Um, we don't even have a commercial ski um, industry, really. There, there's a very small operation up in the north of the state that runs periodically. but Stuff like the legal side of it, the the bike patrol side of it. I mean, we basically had to create a legal and legislative framework at a government level to be able to run a bike patrol. It had never been done before as a, a recreation provider, an adventure tourism provider, to be able to actually treat people with, with paramedics. We employ a full bike patrol team, but there was no way for us to legally do that. So we actually had to create all those frameworks and things and, and coming over and chatting to the industry in the Northern Hemisphere has really been absolutely crucial for us to be able to do that. Yeah, I could. Well, and, and you said this early on, and this is something that's, you know, at the NSAA, they are primarily dealing with bike parks that are part of a ski area. And your bike park has everything that a bike park desires, which is to get out of the open run ski runs that you'd find. So to be able to do that is that's incredible. And I've, we're starting to see those type of bike parks open up in the United States as well, where, you know, I was just at a bike park in Georgia in June or maybe now it was in May. They wouldn't have a ski area there because it's Georgia. It's never cold. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's different. Um, one of the bike parks I went over to initially was bike park Wales in the UK and went and met the, the founders over there and they've now come over to Medina and spoke at a conference we put on 
and and they're awesome awesome guys and they run a great operation um the reason i went over there is because they were sort of the, the biggest greenfields mountain bike park development that had happened in the world at that period and it's different um you're not leveraging all that existing resort infrastructure and it comes with some benefits and it comes with a, a lot of challenges uh, we like to think the benefits are that that we can really curate and create that experience from scratch so we are we are a mountain bike park built by and for mountain bikers and the, the whole way we operate is in a way that's designed to create the best mountain bike experience so every little thing that we do we've done deliberately and we've created deliberately we're not just shoehorning it into an existing resort that might not work for mountain biking and look you even see that in in whistler now i mean whistler's the, the best bike park in the world it's amazing but it's still a ski resort primarily and the way the resort functions and the way the lifts function and the way you you interface with the resort and everything around the resort is still not perfect for mountain biking it's it's good but i don't think they'll ever get it perfect because you know it, they've got to do so many other things here as, as such a big resort yeah that's one of the things that you know i spoke about this quite a bit too where you know marquez with highland bike park you know he took an existing ski resort but he's 100 mountain biking yeah and no, look i guess he's retrofitted and, and i've been to highland highland's amazing and uh, chatting to mark this week actually but it's that that place is awesome and it's been created around mountain biking like yes it was a ski resort but it's been completely rebuilt as a mountain bike destination. So um, I love places like that. And and for us, we're, we're just so passionate about the experience we create for our riders. Um, as we get bigger, we're working really hard to, to maintain that family sort of vibe and our staff are all super friendly and they all love riding. And it's, it's very much about the atmosphere beyond just the trails. And I think that's, that's a lot of work to develop that from the ground up, but, it's really, really hard to develop it within an existing ski resort infrastructure, which is not ragging on ski resorts. They're amazing. I ride them all the time, but it is a different experience. And I know um, last, actually last NSAA conference we went to, we rode a bunch of bike parks over on the East Coast and, and they're all amazing fun, but they sort of lack that, that soul, some of them, of a mountain bike community. Um, there just wasn't that same atmosphere at the, the start and finish of the run, there wasn't the banter, there wasn't that interface between the, the restaurant and the beer drinking at the end of the day and the mountain biking. So I think that's something really special that you get at places like Medina, you get it at places like Highland, you get it at Bike Park Wales. It is a little harder to get at these big resort towns. As much as I love coming here and it's absolutely epic, it's just not quite the same. Yeah, you've perfectly brought us to the next place I like to take this show, which I take this with almost everybody, which is trail communities. You know, you've already talked quite a bit about what trail communities are to you, but let's go a little bit deeper on, you know, what really speaks to you in terms of making or having a great trail community. Besides, yeah. besides microbreweries, because we've talked about it. It's like, <laughs> it's like the number one thing for everybody. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure it is. And, and look, I speak at a bunch of conferences and things and, and people always ask, uh, what do you need? And it, for me, it's just good beer and good coffee. <laughs> but otherwise, you uh, the wrong way around. Good coffee, good beer. No, look, it's it's an interesting one. Um, we so I'll give you a little backstory, I suppose, into Medina, small town. Um, when we first started there, we did, we ran a bunch of public meetings. So I wanted to run a consultation process to make sure that 
um, we were gradually working our way into the community and people were very aware of what we were doing. Um, we didn't want to upset people, basically. It's bringing a, a major tourism destination to a small regional town can be a bit abrasive for, for some people. Um, the first few meetings were, were not great. Um, the first meeting was not much fun. <laughs> people were, were very apprehensive, a little bit angry. Um, by meeting four or five, everyone was cheering and happy. And um, that, that was great, a really, really valuable process. And now we have the, the vast majority. There's only a couple of outliers of the community on board. And this is the non-riding community at Medina. Um, it does change a community. So what we've seen um, with Medina and other places we've worked is property prices have gone up significantly. So as an example, um, before we started building the bike park, you could buy this block of land in town for $15,000. And that block of land sold the other day for $240,000, I think, a small block of land. Most houses you could get for fifty or sixty thousand dollars. They're now coming up into the four hundred thousand dollars, which is still you know relatively cheap for a house in the current market in Tasmania. But you know, massive, massive property price rises. So that's created an issue where a lot of the the renters got shifted out of town because um, everyone turned their houses into holiday accommodation. So. It has changed the fabric of the town a little bit, um, and some would argue not for the better if they've been a long-term resident of the town. But what we've seen more recently is people are actually now moving to the town to live and um, creating a life for themselves based around mountain biking. Um, obviously, remote work helps a bunch with that, which I think is awesome, and all our staff work remotely. For, you know, other than the bike park staff, all our staff work remotely within the trail building business, um, our management team. So they have a lot of flexibility and I think that's created a really good place for people to be in these mountain bike towns. So from a Maydina perspective, we've seen that kind of full cycle from the locals move out to now the locals moving back in, but a different type of local. But to me, um, when I go to a mountain bike town, I like a, a good a good dining experience really like I'm a, I'm a bit of a foodie and at the end of the day of riding I like to be able to go and get a great meal and sit down and for me really enjoy local produce local food local wine and local beer so I like to have a bit of an option there but it, it really is about the people at the end of the day and, and there's nothing better than rocking up at a trailhead or a coffee shop at the start of the day and being able to chat to people about their trails and I think for me, traveling around and meeting a lot of different communities and, and they might be at the start or, you know, well through their mountain bike trail development journey, that the real thing is just seeing how passionate people are about mountain biking and being able to share that with them. So I think any mountain bike community is, is really um, rooted in the people that live there and how excited they are to, and you'd know this, how excited they are to show you their trails. And sometimes they're really good, sometimes they're not that good, <laughs> but they're still really really excited to, to kind of have you there and, and showing you around so that's always awesome and, and one of the best parts of my job anyway yeah how incredible is it to look back at where mountain biking was you know go back to when you got your first mountain bike in 1994 1995 you're going to Vail in 1999 to now we're in 2022 oh, looking at 2023 it's wild <laughs> yeah no look I laugh my my son we, we've got a big commercial partnership with Stram so they look after him and He's got this, you know, he's just moved up to a 24-inch mountain bike, but he's got all the, the best suspension. He's got SRAM axis, electronic shifting. He's, he's got all the gear. And this kid's six years old. I mean, he rides like hell. But 
<laughs> it's it's just hilarious. I, I try and explain to him that I was bashing through the bush on a BMX, and there were there were no formal trails. We we built jumps in the bush and just hung out riding bikes. And and now there's thousands and thousands of kilometers of amazing mountain bike trail and awesome equipment for kids. And and that's been one of the key things for us over the last little while at Medina. Stepping back to that, we, we put a lot of work into growing the kids programs and. Now that you can actually get kids' bikes, um, that's just fed a whole new segment of the sport that's been so awesome to see. Well, and that's a segment of the sport that I've often said we, you know, we really aren't doing kids a good service or we're doing them a disservice because when you pick up a kid's bike and it's the same weight as a bike that you or I would ride, and they're, yeah, they're really underdeveloped exactly. in terms of like, you know, muscle. Like I have a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old daughter and I think my nine-year-old daughter's bike, which maybe this makes me a, a bad parent. I got to, maybe I should upgrade her stuff, which we've been talking about it. But I think her bike, which is a 24-inch wheeled Kona, is like 23 or 24 pounds. Yeah. And that's my, yeah. my cross-country bike, which is a Trek Top Fuel, <laughs> is the same weight. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's crazy. Look, it's getting better. It's definitely getting better as they, they bring more and, and better bikes in. It's just like we're lucky. We, we, we've got all those partnerships. So I'm either not paying or not paying much. But it's expensive and it is an expensive sport to get your kids into. But look, both our kids love it, particularly my eldest. It's just his life, which is fortunate because he's kind of got to fit in with, with my life and the family's life. But yeah, he absolutely loves it. Yeah. I remember I just put access on, on my cross-country bike oh, maybe a month ago. And I remember I came home and I showed it to my older daughter who, who understands what Bluetooth is. And then I'm like, check this out. And I didn't even have the derailleur mounted on the bike yet? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you can push this button over here and it moves this over here. And she was kind of blown away. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that stuff. I've, I've got it on everything other than my downhill bike and I, I can't not run it now. You kind of just get so used to it. Yeah. And I got it just by chance. I had walked into a, one of my local bike shops and I needed a new, uh, <laughs> needed a new derailleur cable and housing. And yeah. the owner was like unboxing some stuff because the EPS truck was just there and he pulled out some access. I'm like, you got access upgrade kits here? Cause that was an access road group that he pulled out and he's like, Oh yeah, we got seven yeah. of them on the shelf over there. And so instead of a cable and a housing, I walked out with never needing a cable and housing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And you'll never, you'll never run a cable and housing again. <laughs> oh, it's, it's incredible. Like I used to, like, I'm teaching my girlfriend how to ride a mountain bike right now. And I, I told her, I'm like, like shifting it, you know, this is what a cable and housing it's I'm like, it's not like a light switch, you know, it's, there's a cable and a housing here and now it's like a light switch. Yeah. It is like a light switch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, as we wrap this up, what do you have for any kind of closing comments or words of wisdom or anything like Simon would impart on the world listening to the Trail Effects <laughs> podcast? Oh, I don't know if I've got any particular pearls of wisdom, but um, look, at the end of the day, I, I think the industry is in a, it's in a really good place at the moment. I, I think it's kind of the, the golden years of mountain biking, hopefully. Like we have seen a bit of a boom and it has slowed down a little bit, but I think now's the time to kind of settle into the, the industry and, and keep developing great mountain bike destinations. Um, for us, like we, we've got a couple of new bike parks that we're developing and we're going to operate those as well. And we're certainly working with a few other clients to get to that point. Um, I think that's just a really cool opportunity to, to really curate that mountain bike experience. And it's hard to do that in a public context. You certainly can, but it's not quite the same. Um, you don't get greeted at the trailhead by someone that tells you everything you need to know and, um, you know, helps you along that mountain bike journey. So for us, that that's really exciting. But 
in terms of industry generally, um, I think that the big change, and I've certainly listened to another couple of your podcasts recently that have that touched on this, but trail building is a legitimate industry now. And particularly, I, I don't know from a North American context, but the wages are actually really quite high in Australia. And, and most of us are paying well above award wages so that we can get people locked in and giving them a legitimate career path. So I'd just encourage people, if you're interested in the outdoors, you love mountain biking, maybe think about giving trail building a go because you can progress right through companies like ours. You can end up as a manager, not building trail and just helping design and manage trail construction projects. I, I think that's really exciting because when I started, it was very much just a bunch of dirt bags in the bush. And <laughs> look, we were scratching things together and everything was low budget and we were just paying our friends to come out and hang out and build trail. It's not like that anymore. And I'm sure North America is the same. It would be great to see more people get involved and, and help us grow the industry. Yeah, for sure. And getting those wages up there is, it is super important. You know, there's, I know there's some areas like in Minnesota, when you, you know, when you had builders working for government contracts, the government's forced the the wage on the builders. Yep. and while that, you know, made their overhead go up there, I know talking to those employees that were going to build on those projects, they were pumped. Yeah. And look, it's critical for, from our, from our company's perspective, we, we just want to pay our guys more. Um, what that means is we need to charge our clients more, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the only way to make the industry sustainable because we don't want people, you know, working for us in their, their early to mid twenties, for example. And then leaving because they can't support a family. I mean, that's not the case anymore. Our wages are great and you can have a really, really comfortable living on them. But we need to keep working in that space, I think. But like I say, I just encourage people to to look at the industry, think about it, give it a go because it's super fun. It's awesome in the outdoors. Like all our crews are riding every day. They've got a great lifestyle. Yeah, they move around a little bit. That works for some people, maybe not for others, but uh, it's a great industry to be in, particularly at the moment. Yeah. Well, and as you alluded to early on, or probably maybe in the middle of the episode, you're, when you go to a place to build, you're not, you're there for a while. You're not just there for a few weeks. And I think that's where, at least in North America, that's where it gets a little bit more difficult because like I've said, you have to live like a gypsy at a lot of yeah. these projects. And that's really difficult for people. And they can do that maybe in their twenties, but if they want to start a family and have a house, you know, living like a gypsy isn't, isn't an option. No, it's it's hard. And look, we've got some staff that travel around with family and kids to, to projects with us and, and we work with them to sort out. Generally, we accommodate all our own staff, but we work with some of our staff to, to sort out alternative accommodation if they need to house a family and negotiate in that space to find the best outcome. So I think things like that really make the industry viable for people. Um, we've certainly moved quite a few of our field staff into management roles over the years as they've progressed into family life and their circumstances have changed. So it's certainly not uh, the short-term career option anymore, I don't think. And I'm sure it's moving into a similar place in North America if it hasn't already. But yeah, look, you'll never get over that nomadic gypsy thing uh, unless you're based out of bike park. We've certainly had staff that stayed with us long term at Maidena and we will at these other couple of bike parks that we're working on. So I guess that's a new option as well or newer in Australia, probably not so new in North America, but being able to base yourself at a destination like say Highland, for example, being pretty much a year round bike park and, and not moving around so much. Yeah, I think I think my biggest takeaway from this is 
learning from you is like dealing with the adversity because holy cow, <laughs> from dealing with the meetings, the planning, fire, COVID, and all the other things that you've, you've laid out here, it just, it just people, you know, it, it's an inspiration for me. And so I really appreciate you coming on here and reaching out and, and being able to share all this with, with me and with the people that get to listen to this. No, that's all right. Not a worry at all. It's been good to chat. So, well, Simon, I'm going to hit stop in the recording. I really appreciate this. And I thank you so no, much. Thank you. Good to chat. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.